Let me get my uh, multiple. It's never a good night for y'all when I have multiple podiums. You do realize that the notes I'm working off of for all our church history stuff were from what we did at Central. We called it the intensive, and it was a six-hour Bible study. And I figure since y'all don't have choir tonight, we'll just finish it all out. I'm kidding. We won't do it tonight. Actually, in all seriousness with you, in light of uh, still figuring out how much I've lost on my prior computer or not, and in and in realizing we, we, don't, we aren't limited just by, I don't want to drag out church history for uh, five years, but at the same time, we're not limited by a six-hour window and how long you can hold your needed bathroom break in that six hours. I'm kind of re in the process of retooling some stuff, thinking about the next weeks down the line and how best to walk through things. So maybe that we kind of slow down on some things and, and do kind of some pockets of church history and then hit something else for a little bit and then come back, just, just so as to uh, uh, take you as, as deep as I can on some things. Um, that's your official word for tonight. Your fun word for tonight, how many of you were here last night for hymn sing? Great. Then I have something funny to tell you. So we got in the car, and we were almost to, uh, is it 685? That cuts up to Hutto. We were almost right there, and Jesse in the back seat last night gets real sad. She gets real sad and goes, I... I miss, I miss, I miss my friends. And we said, do you mean your friends at church? Yes. So all of you who were here last night, Jesse, at least last night, decided you're her friends, and she was very sad to leave you, but was very sad to go to HEB and get all sorts of yummy food and pouches to eat. So I love to tell you she still remembered that by the time she got home, but by the time we got home, it was on to, uh, can we watch Blue's Clues and have a pouch? Uh, but it was sweet. I thought y'all would appreciate that. Okay, when we left off last time, two weeks ago, we were looking at, we, we, we've moved into the second century, so the 100 ADs, and we've seen some of the early key uh, theologians, pastors, uh, Polycarp, uh, Ignatius, um, we have, uh, just in the martyr, we've seen kind of the two big categories of things that would press the early church for the first several centuries. Uh, persecution. When we looked at persecution, we kind of walked through really all of the persecutions up until you get to the time of Constantine, when for the most part, uh, at least in the Roman Empire, uh, persecution will end on a widespread level. Uh, we also started walking through heresies, and we took, uh, took a lot of time last time to kind of look at two of the big ones. And we're going to pick up with a couple small ones that are not necessarily ones. One I think you could safely say is heresy for doctrine. The other is not so much full heresy for doctrine as it is in, in what it called believers to practically and how that played out in church life. And so we're going to look at those to then make a point about how the early church dealt with those. And then we're going to look at who are the major uh, major pastor theologians for the rest of that second century as we build up to uh, really the, the, the third and fourth centuries where a lot, a lot more stuff starts to go down because we have access to it. So starting that tonight, uh, starting with that idea is, is Montanism and the early church heresies. And at some point, I'll get you a cheat sheet. I'm not cheating you from your cheat sheet. Uh, it's just as I'm retooling stuff, it would be a mess to give you anything right now. So you'll see all this. I'll try to make it nice for you. Um, Montanism. Here's what Montanism was. In the mid-100s, uh, there, was, there was a man by the name of Montanus plus two ladies, Priscilla and Maximilla, and they were in the region of uh, Phrygia, which you'll remember is in modern-day Turkey. You've heard that term used in Paul's letters. And they would start a movement that was called, in their circles, the New Prophecy Movement. And the idea was that they saw the prophecy and speaking, what we would, we would probably use the term today, speaking in tongues. That's not necessarily the term they would have used, but it's uh, probably close enough to help us understand. They saw prophecy and speaking in tongues as the hallmark trademark of true apostolic Christianity, meaning the, meaning the kind of Christianity that they, you, you read in the New Testament about the apostles having, that if you really were walking in the faith, you were prophesying and, and speaking in tongues. And, and what, this, what this 
altered is, in a sense, all of a sudden, if, if every believer possesses the ability to prophesy, and by prophesy we mean the Holy Spirit gave me a word for what's coming, or the Holy Spirit gave me a word that's not previously been revealed, you all of a sudden you get into, at the foundation, a question of authority. Well, what makes something authoritative? Who has that authority? Well, if, you know, if today I come out and say, you know, the Holy Spirit gave me a vision today, church family. Gave me a vision today that Jesus only seemed to be born from Mary. He didn't actually come through Mary's womb. Well, hey, Holy Spirit told me. I have the authority to... You see how messy that quickly becomes on down the line. In addition to that, their practice of tongues was not uh, like what most of the early church understood, which would have been a, a literal language, a true communication, but instead the way they played it off was like, uh, was very ecstatic and, and, and came across like a frenzied ecstasy in Babel, which in that day and time with many pagan religions, the pagan religions did the same thing. So it brought up concerns of, in fact, you're saying you're being speaking at the Spirit, but in fact, are you playing with the demonic? Now, the irony of this, in contrast sometimes to um, maybe some similar experiences today, um, part of what made this movement extremely popular was the fact that in response, you remember we talked last time about Gnosticism, that there was this Gnostic movement, and Gnosticism was really bigger than Christianity, but there is a Christian form of it where there's a higher knowledge. And in that re-understanding of the creation narrative, if you'll remember, the physical world was never supposed to be made. It's a mistake. It's inherently evil. And so it tended to take those who fell in that camp to one of two extremes. Either it, all the physical is evil, so avoid it at all costs. It's just a hindrance. Or it's all evil and doesn't matter anyway, so just do whatever you want, which is a very popular cultural message. Times haven't changed. And so part of the popularity of this movement is they rejected this idea that you have to have this special knowledge that's only reserved for a select few people who are willing to go up in there, re re rejected an elitism that came with Gnosticism, who tended to be highly philosophical and intellectuals. It also rejected, it was extremely rigorous morally. You were going to hold to tight, hard standards. It was a protest to an increasing worldliness and and in addition to worldliness, what they felt like was a higher formality in church life where things were beginning, beginning to look very hierarchical and very structured and very, whereas you do, I mean, in truth, you do read some of those passages in Acts and you recognize, man, they were just having a good old-fashioned prayer meeting. That wasn't some hierarchical, here's this liturgy and then this liturgy followed by this point. They were just getting together and praying. And so there's, uh, by no means do I want to, when we... When we List this in here. I'm not trying in any ways to uh, um, uh, overly criticize it, but it, it represented itself as a return to primitive Christianity. It was it provided an emotional exuberance rather than more of a rigid, um, maybe legalism in some ways at times in terms of how it felt and what was seen. But the church responded to it by ultimately trying to go back and say, well, who, that question of authority. Well, the Spirit, Holy Spirit seems to work in community, so we're going to have these little councils. We're not at the big councils yet, but these little meetings of pastors. And if they're all in agreement, well, this, you know, there's great, uh, what is it, great wisdom in the, in, the, in the council of many. So the Holy Spirit speaks in the council of many. We're going to go to the authority of Scripture. And when, and when we see that your prophecy, which you're calling prophecy, doesn't look like what Scripture calls prophecy, we're going to call you out on it. And and ultimately, they're going to go to this argument that we'll see play out more over the course of tonight, which is that the bishops, the pastors, have the Holy Spirit's authority by virtue of their office, which on one hand, you'll understand they're not trying, in some cases, to do anything bad. You'll get, we'll get why more here in a second. At the other hand, you can begin to get some of the beginnings of stuff that's going to become problematic later on. And we live in a day with so much church history, we've seen both the success and failure of people in the office of pastors. So, uh, and, and even one of the men we looked at tonight is going to become a Montanist for a time because of how much he admired the, the more rigid morality that they came with in contrast to uh, some of the carnality that uh, 
that was there. So it's an interesting movement, and you'll understand how it's, it's not so much that there was a major doctrinal difference, there was a difference in understanding how certain gifts of the Spirit might play and how certain aspects of discipline would come into a church, such that, such that if you had a church with half Montanist and half not, you were going to have a lot of conflict. So it's not so much a heresy in the sense of a doctrinal thing, but was going to become problematic. In addition, what would be a heresy is what we call, uh, incredi- uh, uh, I always can say these words right when I'm studying them, and then you get talking fast and it's going to sound terrible, but encraticism, uh, which rejected essentially is, is very much like practically the Gnostic thought who saw all material as bad. Now, the difference is they did not agree with the Gnostic theology that the physical world was created with all this nonsense and this and that. They were more sound in terms of their understanding of creation, but they, they viewed asceticism as a higher form of spirituality, so much so that they would even say human reproduction is, is bad. It's a hindrance to your spiritual growth. And you're going to say, well, that makes no sense. Yes, and I can't, this is a smaller heresy, so we're not, I don't have all sorts of info to tell you why, because one, Paul says anyone who tells you that marriage is sinful is not of God, tells Timothy that. Two, practically, how do you think people are going to keep on till the return of Jesus? If all the Christians stop having babies, and they eventually evangelize and reach the whole world, and everybody stops having babies. I guess that's how Jesus returns. The human population just dies off. I don't know. But anyways, you've got these these heresies that, again, in the second century, there's more than just that, but these are all in the second century. Now, what would be labeled as perhaps the greatest uh, by Tertullian, who we'll look at tonight, what, what he would call the greatest danger to the church in terms of heresy is what we would call, or the official name is Patrapassianism, or we might call modalism, and more of a modern-day idea. Now, here's here's where it went. Um, you you everybody is trying, and in the early church, we've, we've, we're worshiping God. We understand that our God is one, but we also worship Jesus Christ as God. Well, if God is one, and Jesus is God but the Father is God, you're going to begin to see this pattern. This is going to be a major stream for the next several weeks as we go through. How how does this play out? And in some parts of the church, this is how one put it, the problem for the early church was not how can three be one, but rather how can one be three? Remember, we believe in one, we believe in a triune God. God in his basic nature is triune, which nothing else in all physical or spiritual creation is. He is one being, one God, not three gods, one God, who exists as three co-eternal, meaning always has been, always is, always will be, three co-eternal, three co-equal, all of them are equally God, one is not more God than the other, and distinct, meaning they are not different forms of each other. They are distinct persons from the other. One God, three co-eternal, co-equal, distinct persons. That is as good a definition as we can get of the Trinity. We've covered that in the last year. Uh, If you missed it, you can go back online or you can talk to me afterwards. But ultimately, um, you cannot find an example of triune in all of nature because nothing in nature is triune. And in a sense, it helps us understand we are creature, God is creator, and only God is God. Not even the angels or demons, those who inhabit the spiritual realm, are God. The spiritual realm was created just as much as our realm. And so in response to this, you had some which would fall to what we would call dynamic dynamic uh, monarchianism, which is an early idea of adoptionism, which is actually making a comeback in some Western Christian circles. And this is this idea, that Jesus is just a man, just a man who lived a life so worthy that God adopted him as his son. Or adoptionism today might say that Jesus was just a man, and at his baptism, the spirit of the Messiah God put on him, but prior to his baptism, he wasn't the Messiah. You'll understand why I, I made pain Sunday to say, look at this description of the man over the river, Tigris, in Daniel chapter 10, 
And listen how it's verbatim to the description of Jesus in Revelation 1, which tells you Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, whom we call the Son in terms of his title, looks the same here as he looks here because Jesus has always been God, is always God, always will be God. And when Jesus, according to Philippians chapter 2, he did not cease being God. He was not a human who was born and became God. But according to Philippians chapter 2, he who has always been God, who's always been fully glorified with God. Remember Jesus' prayer the night before crucifixion, John 17. He prays, Father, restore to me the glory that was mine with you before the foundation of the world. He's always had full glory. He's always been God. Jesus... It says that he humbled himself. It says that he did not, your, your Bible uses this interesting phrase, or the Bible uses, not yours, all our Bibles do the same word. He emptied himself, not meaning he ceased being, but, but rather than relying on his own self-power as divine, he so took on humanity that he chose by volitional response to rely only on the power of God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, which also sets an example for us, by the way, as believers. And they didn't count his glory and authority as God as something to be lorded over all of us as he interacted with all of us. I mean, this is why, according to Isaiah 53, he was so average, no one paid him any time a day. Yet if he were to be transfigured in a blinkling of an eye, everybody at the temple would have prostrated down in terror, just like Daniel in Daniel chapter 10. So adoptionism, we throw that out. Jesus didn't become God. And by the way, if somehow he was just a man who was so worthy, God made him the Christ, then that means salvation is not by grace through faith. That means it's by works, because it means Jesus would only be whatever he is by works. He's not who he is by works. He's who he is by nature. But modalism is a different idea. Modalism, and the reason that Tertullian felt like this was such a problem is and this, this would be true today. I would say the same concern could be true for the church today, is that many people are modalists and don't realize it. And modalism is this. There is one God who shows up three different ways. So at this point in time, he shows up as God, as Father. But at this moment in time, around the turn of the century, in the days of Caesar Augustus and Pontius Pilate and Herod the Great, he shows up as Jesus. And now, after Jesus has died and, and, and risen and, and gone back to heaven, now he shows up as the Holy Spirit. So one God, one person, who has three different changes of clothes. That's what modalism is. And it's easy, it, the reason it's so easy is because it's easy, it's hard, it's hard to try to fathom the Trinity. You know why? Because you can't fully fathom it. And Scripture doesn't even attempt to help us fully fathom it, it just presents the reality of what is. There's one God, one being in, in all of reality, only one being is God. And He is three co-equal, co-eternal, distinct persons. And... And modalism is so common. I've, I've shared this story before, but I'll do it again because I don't expect you to remember it. Um, and it's just as funny. I will never forget. There's a very popular, very popular contemporary Christian song. It was November of 2002 because it was just after eighth grade football season. That's how I remember it. Dad and I were going to get our hair cut at the barber across from campus. And this song was crazy popular. Um, by a band named Big Daddy Weave. And I am in no way insinuating that Big Daddy Weave is are heretics. I've, I've not taken on the band. I just were talking about the lyrics in the song. And this song came on, and I said something, and Dad said, oh, yeah, that's the heresy song. I said, the heresy song? He said, yeah, listen to it. It's heresy. Great song. For my audience of one, hang on, I'm going to blank out on the moment. The key, the key line is, as your spirit flows free, let it find within me a heart that beats to praise you. That sounds really good. Except that the Holy Spirit is not an it. He is he. He is a person, not an impersonal force or being. He is a personal being. He is God 
should be, as your spirit flows free, let him find within me a heart that beats to praise you. Uh, so it's easy for us to fall into this. By the way, I, won't, I will not name names. There are some prominent other Christian groups who there have been long rumors of, y'all would know, who are modalists in their view of the Trinity. And I promise you've heard their music and enjoyed it on a cassette tape, on a CD, or on the radio. So this is a major challenge to the early church. How can one God be three distinct persons? What is the response? Now, when I say this, this is now leads us to a question. Well, how did we get what we call orthodoxy? That is correct doctrine. Because one of the common things today, you will hear from those of a more uh, uh, moderate or, or liberal persuasion or more of a questioning persuasion will say, well, that's the church never really had concrete beliefs. They only had a couple things they thought were true, and then it just was a matter of who got the upper hand in terms of power and could convince enough people of that set of beliefs to root out all these others. That is a comment. And what does that do? What does that tell you when you're in a place where you're willing to question or struggling? It means, man, everything the church has ever taught me is wrong. It's just a matter of the victor getting to write history. Well, that is unfortunately a gross misinterpretation of the facts of history. What preceded? Did heresy precede orthodoxy or did orthodoxy precede heresy? If orthodoxy is defined in an institutional term as a fixed statement of belief that's out there for public consumption, then yes, around AD 200, AD 200 is when you start to see some of the real first formal statements of orthodoxy. But orthodoxy is not dependent upon a, 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 an official statement for, its, for existence. Let me put it to you this way. Did baseball or pick any other game, did baseball exist as a sport when it was first being played and everybody knew what the rules were, or did it not exist as a sport until they wrote all those rules down and published them officially through the Library of Congress? Well, of course it existed before they wrote all the rules down and published it in the Library of Congress. Now, that's partly a bad, a bad illustration because that implies that nothing was written down when everybody was playing baseball. It was all word of mouth. And the truth is, with what we're talking about here, all 66 books of Scripture were already written down. What you find when you study early church history is there is overwhelming, gross agreement on what is core doctrine and the reason you don't get some of the statements until you get the statements is because there wasn't anybody trying to challenge it. Or all of you will get this. Have you ever had to give the rules for a game for a group of teenagers. And you give all the rules. And then they come and do something that breaks the rules, but you didn't say it in just the right way to say that broke the rules. And now, next time you give the rules, there's a new rule. That was my life as a youth pastor. And then I would, I would in giving the rules, be, try to be two steps ahead and already come up with all the rules I would think that they would try to break in twisting the rules. That's what the early church did. It's not that the rules weren't there. It's not that orthodoxy wasn't there. It's not that all of a sudden the people who wanted Jesus to be fully God won out in the end. It's not that. Jesus was always understood. Go back to some of those early descriptions I read for you at the start of the summer from, from pagan Jewish and Roman historians who said these Christians, these weirdos, gather on the first day of the week and they sing songs of praise about Jesus as if he is God. There was never a time in the true church where Christians didn't understand Jesus to be fully God, always had been, is, and always will be. Always. Now, let me give you a setup. We're not going to answer this question tonight, but I do want you to start to see over the next several weeks, I want you to see how at the core, at the core of these heresies are going to be questions about who Jesus really is. And any alteration away from what Scripture says about who Jesus is, and not just who Jesus is, but the reality of a triune God, any alteration whatsoever obliterates salvation as Scripture describes it. 
give you one example. If God is really just one God who puts on three different outfits, depending on the time, then when God is in Jesus mode, hanging on the cross, who's pouring out the wrath on him? Nobody. He can't bear the wrath. If God is only one God, then when he takes his blood as Jesus, according to Hebrews, and walks into the throne room and sprinkles it on the altar before nobody. But Hebrews says Jesus entered that place and sprinkled his blood on the altar before the Father. Scripture says that while Jesus hung on that cross in agony, it was the Father who was pleased to crush him and pour out his own wrath on him. If God just shows up as the Holy Spirit, then how can... That means he's a liar who doesn't even understand his own nature because Jesus says, I got to go back to the right hand of the Father. That implies distinction so that I can send you the Holy Spirit. You understand? Like all of a sudden, salvation is shot if our God is not a trinity, just like Scripture says. Now, that's some foreshadowing for time to come. But here's what I want you to understand. There was always orthodoxy, But in a day and age when writing utensils were not as easily available as today, and in a day and age where information did not move as fast today, and a day and age where for for the first easily 100 years or first at least 60 years of Christianity, it was such a fringe group that was so persecuted, there wasn't time to put a lot. The reason you don't see some of these formal statements is because you got to give time for people to try to bend the rules and say stuff that's false and be responded to. So that's what's going on. So yes. Now, how did they determine what was orthodox? Two major things you're going to hear about in these writers. One is what we call apostolic succession. Apostolic succession. And it's the idea that especially in this day and age, when you're talking about the 100 ADs, that they could, they could quite literally trace, well, I learned this from this guy who studied under this guy who was brought to Christ by the apostle John who studied under Jesus. There is this succession of we are still within less than six degrees of Kevin Bacon from Jesus. So we're, we're looking at what has been passed down. And again, how has that been passed down? And this will give you an idea of why when you hear about some of the ways the early church and some of the authority of the office of bishop, of pastor, why that's so important, you'll understand this because also, again, we're living in a day and time. We, we take for granted and just assume what life is like to own as many copies of this as you want. You can go buy a Bible for $5. There's nobody who can. In fact, most churches worth their salt will give anybody who wants a Bible one for free. And there's plenty of churches. You're talking about a day and age where to have a copy of the Bible, you're going to have to have a codex this big. You're, you might not have the money to have. I mean, there's, there's challenge. You did, not everybody ran around having a written copy of the Word, even though it was written down and passed around. But who likely would have that copy? The pastor. Because who was doing the preaching from the Word on the Sundays? The pastor. Who was it who, who tended to be put in these offices? The guys who were discipled by the guys who were the discipled by the disciples. So you trace this line of apostolic succession so as to establish the validity, the stability, or the uniformity of teaching was guaranteed. And not only this, but all of this passing of the torch, if you will, it was done publicly for everybody to see. Unlike the Gnostics, where everything was secret, the mystery religions, where no one really knew what was behind closed doors. Do you notice when you called me as pastor? It wasn't secret. It didn't take place back in the old choir room, or better yet, under the, uh, under the stage here, to which Jesse has nicknamed the cave. It didn't happen in the cave. It happened on a Sunday morning. Anybody, everybody could see it happen. It was as public. It was public. It was announced on Facebook. It's what's thrown the whole aspect of being a pastor and leaving a church in total confusion because used to, you'd go to in view of a call, find out if the church was going to call you, and then you'd go back and tell your church you were leaving. Now, because of social media, you got to tell your church, hey, I might be leaving, but I don't know yet, so pray for me next week. And, or maybe don't pray for me. I don't know. It depends on how you feel about me. Um, right? We, why? I'm making light of it to say it's all done publicly. And that passing down of doctrine in a day and time of oral transmission from the apostles 
you could trace it all publicly for anybody to see. This is why, I mean, this, this is true even in the Word of God. For we did not make known to you cleverly devised tales. Uh, no, that's not what I want. It's the problem when you don't remember the reference right on, so you should never feel bad as a church person if you forget a reference, because I forget them too. God doesn't give the pastor supernatural reference memory. Anyways, um, well, the whole point is this. When you go read through Paul and Peter, notice when they, and John, notice when they talk about, we didn't hand you something we heard, we, we handed you what we saw. Eyewitness, there's this emphasis on being an eyewitness on having heard, this is the idea, the basic idea behind, hey, what you're teaching doesn't line up with what the apostles taught. This is, and this is true too. Paul tells this to Timothy. Don't you dare teach anything that you didn't hear me teach. Pass down the tradition you heard me teach. Pass down, you see that in his instructions in Timothy. And so some of these men, like uh, Irenaeus, would argue if the apostles had any secrets to impart, they would have delivered them to the men they had enough confidence with to entrust the care of the churches to. But they didn't, because they didn't have more secret stuff to. They passed on what was true. Now, this idea is going to eventually, when you move into the next century, begin to transition from this line of succession to you're not just passing down the apostles' teaching, but you are the, the pastor is now the very successor of the apostle. And that's going to introduce some ideas that come to play out in the Roman Catholic Church. We're not there yet, but this is where that foundation is going to get laid, uh, even though that is not the intent. In addition, they would have what they call the rule of faith. Uh, this was a term coined by, by uh, Irenaeus, who we'll look at in just a second, his way of summarizing the teaching of the apostles. So, so we can see the succession of the pastors from the apostles. This falls out of the line from what they say. Not only that, but we have access to the actual. We know what the whole, what the whole doctrine was the apostles taught, and this falls short. We have their oral teachings and we have their written, the written word of God. We've got this. We've got the gospels. We've got Paul's letters. We can match it up and see, and it falls short. And out of this, what they call rule of faith is where you're going to get things like the Apostles' Creed. And you're going to get things like the Apostles' Creed as a test of orthodoxy. In fact, I'll give you an example of how they might use the Apostles' Creed. You'd come forward to be baptized. I've, I've asked Jesus Christ to save me. I've acknowledged I'm born a sinner. I'm in active rebellion against God. Jesus is fully God, who became fully man, who lived the life I failed to live, who died the death I deserve, who rose from the grave. I've come forward publicly to acknowledge that in baptism. And so they might do something like this as you got in the baptismal waters. Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? Which you would say, yes. Do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit and Mary the Virgin, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate and died and rose again the third day, living from among the dead, who ascended into heaven and sat at the right of the Father and will come to judge the, the quick and the dead? Yes. Do you believe on down the line through those articles of the Apostles' Creed? It was a baptism creed originally. And so this is what uh, those creed, that, those, especially those early creeds were developed off of, was a summary of biblical doctrine. And then as a defense against the other. Now, with our time left, I want to shift gears. That's the, the, and remember, all of that is happening as you're having persecutions come and go. Right? Don't, we, can't, we can't put these in a vacuum like, okay, persecution mode and then heresy mode. No, all of this was happening. The early church was charged with the same mission we're charged with, to make disciples of all nations. The pastors were charged with the same responsibility we're charged with today as pastors, to shepherd the flock, to, to preach the word, to spend the ministry of prayer. The deacons were charged with the same ministry the deacons are charged with today, to see over the ministries of the church and, and, and on down the line. And and all these things are all true as the early church is also having to fight against various forms of heresy, just like today, as the church is coming in and out of persecution. It's all happening at once at times. So you can understand uh, why um, to our minds that like to go, oh, well, why don't... Um, 
Well, why, you know, why, why, did, they, why did Polycarp not write a full systematic theology textbook like Wayne Grudem? Well, maybe because there wasn't the time, space, or safety to do so. But then that's not totally true because all these guys wrote early works that were fighting against the heresies by taking it back to Scripture and going, look where you fall short. They're just called letters, not systematic theology textbooks that are 500 pages long. So here we go. Who are some key people in this time as we close out the second century? It would be Irenaeus. Irenaeus. Irenaeus was born around 130 uh, AD. He would be discipled and study under Polycarp. If you remember right, had the, had the, the, the famous martyrdom. He would grow up in, uh, Irenaeus would know Polycarp from going up in Smyrna, and uh, which you'll catch Smyrna as one of the churches uh, in the letter to Revelation. Um, Polycarp, if you remember right, was discipled by John the Apostle. So again, you see this idea of succession. So it, I mean, think about that. I can tell you very confidently all sorts of stuff that my grandfather believes. You know how, why? Because I studied under my dad, who studied under my grandfather. Now I can also take, because I studied under my grandfather. But you catch the point? That's, that's Irenaeus. Hey, I can tell you you're wrong, because I studied under the guy who studied under John. You're wrong. And I also have the written word. Uh, he, he would grow up in Smyrna, but he would end up west into what we would call Gaul and to the place of lions in southern France, where he would become a presbyter. Now, at this time, you'd have this idea, uh, maybe the simplest way to put it is presbyters seemed to be, be uh, the smaller pastors, and they would elect out of them a head pastor over the whole city. Likely what you have is the presbyters are leading the actual house churches because you don't have mega buildings that can seat all these. They're having house churches, and, but who's going to be responsible for the church that's in? I mean, think about it like this. It'd be like all the local pastors of real churches in Pflugerville being presbyters and then us electing one of us to be the bishop over Pflugerville to give account for the whole region and all the house churches that exist. So he's a presbyter, and uh, he's going to take the 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 he's going to take a letter to Rome to the bishop of Rome while he's there. Some persecution is going to break out. The bishop in Lyons is killed, and when he goes back, he will be made uh, a bishop. Uh, he has many uh, he has so, several key writings. He's a missionary and apologist, and ultimately, his heart, uh, as opposed to being someone who's real wrapped up like some of these other guys in philosophical speculations, his heart is driven by being a good pastor by making sure he feeds the flock, protecting them from false truth, encouraging them. He's going to be a strong opponent of Gnosticism and a key defender of orthodox doctrine. And as he defends doctrine, he's going to do so without putting in a bunch of his own speculation into, uh, into the, the place. He's going to be the first theologian, probably because he is going to have access much easier to all written copies. He's going to be the first theologian to argue from Scripture as a whole, meaning he's going to start quoting both Old and New Testament, and which is going to help everybody see the broad whole story of Scripture in both plot and doctrine. He's going to stress the unity of God as Creator and the unity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the, the ultimate... Uh, a pillar of, of, of the human experience. It brings God of, God's plan of salvation. And he's going to be a key transitional figure from the days of the apostles to the days of what we call the old Catholic church. And I don't mean that in a Roman Catholic sense, just the, the, old, the old universal church is what that would mean. He is going to be the idea, he's, as we already mentioned, he's going to stress the idea of, um, stress the idea of apostolic Succession. In addition, he's going to put, let me make sure I say this right. Yeah, he's going to put a lot of emphasis on the importance of the Church of Rome. Because Rome, for a variety of reasons, it's in the capital. Rome is the church where Peter and Paul both were martyred. Rome, and he's going to put some, uh, a little bit more weight there. Again, not to the extent that we know from the Roman Catholic Church, but that's going to be some of the tradition the Roman Catholic Church will begin to use when that time comes to put the weight on why is the bishop of Rome, the Pope, have the authority that he has? Well, because he is the successor of Peter, whom Jesus handed the key. All of this is going to come tied together. So I'm, I'm dropping you little hints that we don't have time to cover, but we will. Be, I want you to see where those things are laid down. Um, I'm going to hold off for a second to get through these others, but if we got time, I want to read you. What I love about Irenaeus is he saw this whole big picture 
of just this grand story of history from a time before creation and what motivated God to create to what makes humanity unique to how Satan and the demons, and, and I mean, just in, in how it's all going to, it's just incredible. And so if you've got time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it to you, but I want to I want to uh, make sure we get through these others first. Tertullian is going to come around about A.D. 160 and live until around A.D. 200. He's going to be the most prolific Christian writer until you get to the 4th century, some 200 years later. Uh, he will originally write in Greek, but he will begin to write, and he's going to mark a transition from a lot of the writings in the early church being in Greek, which you'll remember was the common language of the New Testament time, to Latin as Latin became more and more dominating the language, especially in North Africa, where he, uh, where he is from. He's going to write a variety of things, prescription on heretic, prescription of heretics, where he's going he's to make a twofold argument, which is great. One, he's going to show how heretics are wrong, but then he's going to come back and say, through it, through, because he was, uh, Tertullian was trained as a lawyer and was a brilliant with rhetoric. He's known for his sarcastic wit. And he's going to make a basically a state in, the, in, in prescription on heretics. Heretics are wrong. Here's where they fall short scripturally. Oh, and by the way, they don't even have a right to use scripture for their heresies because they don't fall in line under its authority. Only Christians have the right to use scripture. It's kind of a comical uh, way that he goes about doing it. So, uh, for, for, you know, to put it to modern day, oh, you stepped outside of what scripture teaches? Well, you're no longer allowed to even use scripture to promote your false views on Scripture because you, you have no right to. You've rejected what it actually says. He's going to write against Marcion. You'll remember the, the heretic who carved up his own uh, passage of Scripture. He's going to write and lay out an argument for the Trinity against modalism, that God is one God, one substance is the way he's going to use it, three persons. He'll write on baptism, which gives us a, uh, an idea of early baptismal practice. And in addition, one of his writings is called To His Wife, which gives us a picture of Christian marriage in the, in the second century. Just some interesting things that aren't as like theological apologetical, but gives us there, gives us some idea. He's going to craft, he is vital Tertullian because he will lay the groundwork for much of the theological language that down the line the church would come to adopt, like original sin, the person and nature of the Trinity, uh, sacrament, merit, all these things. He's going to lay groundwork for the Trinity, and he's going to be a little different. He's, his idea is once you find the truth, don't dabble in anything else. Don't speculate anymore. Don't try to play off. Just, just stay focused on the truth. He says, and, and he'd give this idea, you know, the classic question, okay, if God can do anything, can God create a rock so big he can't move it, right? He would look at you, and that's ridiculous. Don't question what God can do. Question what God has done. We don't deal. We don't deal as humans in what is possible. We deal in what is actual. He he was going to just say, get on with the truth. He is, going, he is going to be one to join that Montanist group because of how, how much he was attracted to the seriousness with which they took the Christmas, Christian life in light of the worldliness that he began to watch. That's going to re reveal a tendency in him to take uh, the legalism, uh, to take Roman legal tradition with the Mosaic law and especially um, the Sermon on the Mount as a kind of new form of law. It's going gonna, it's gonna to lead him to some past we might call legalism, which is going to lay some groundwork to later versions of the church to come in and go, huh, is there a way to be saved through works rather than uh, through, by grace through faith? But his, his rhetoric is, is, is well known. He's the one who we paraphrase and to say the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In actuality, it's from him. He wrote, the more we are cut down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. Uh, he said as an apologetic that the truth of Christianity is credible because it is unlikely, meaning that it's so absurd no man would ever come up with it on their own. He would say, what is Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? And his ideas that... Uh, Heresy and, and like human philosophy is derived from humans trying to find truth apart from God's revelation. Don't start with that. Go to God's revelation. Go to the Word. He elsewhere is going in his attack on Marcion. I'm going to have to paraphrase it because I don't remember what page I marked it on. 
But in attacking Marcion, remember Marcion said that there's an Old Testament God who created everything, who's nasty and mean and just cruel. And then there's this New Testament God who sent Jesus who wants to bring salvation. And he would attack Marcion and say, what good is his God? His God couldn't create anything. He just sharp, sarcastic wit with which he would attack and go through that. That's Tertullian. This gets us to our last two guys that we're going to look at tonight. Clement of Alexandria was born around 150 and lived until 215. Um, well known for writing an apology. He, he is going to be a little different than Tertullian and even than Irenaeus in that uh, in living in Alexandria, Alexandria, if I remind you, Alexandria uh, on the north coast of Africa is going to be the epicenter of Hellenism, that Greek thought. It's going to be the largest uh, home for Jews uh, in that day and time. This is going to be the place, the Greek copy of the Old Testament, the Septuagint is commissioned and, and written uh, back in the BCs. All, all of this is Alexandria. And Alexandria is going to really represent in the Roman Empire the foremost intellectual hub, many educated, cultured. So to be there and to be in that place and really thrive, you're going to be somebody like, like Clement, a seeker. He was always studying philosophy, striving to answer life's questions, and eventually he comes in contact with a Christian teacher named uh, uh, Pantanen, uh, Pantanenus, and who's going to explain the Christian truth, but do it so in a philosophical uh, manner. And this is going to lead uh, Clement to, to give his life to Christ. And, and, and really, the big key with what Clement is going to start to do is Clement looks at it this way. If the Jews understood God's, God's truth because God gave it and revealed it to them in the covenant, then the Greeks, and really the Gentiles, they understood it by groping after philosophy. That's one of my former college students. I'll call him back later. Um, he would be quite embarrassed if I answered right now. Uh, that the Greeks had, because here's the idea, if you, if you study, we talked about Plato last time. Plato was big on this dualistic idea that this physical world is but a copy of some greater higher form and that you've got to escape from this. Well, is it true that this physical world is broken and filled with evil? Yeah, that's true. Is it true that there's a spiritual plane where when you and I die and we get to go there, there's no more evil? Yeah, it's true. But is that the whole truth? No. Is the conclusion from that that therefore the whole physical world is evil and of no value? No. Uh, Aristotle. Some will say, if you really get into Aristotle's philosophy, some will say Aristotle probably came closer than any other known lost person to the, tr the biblical truth of the gospel. But because he didn't really have access to the gospel, he, he never crossed that line for whatever reason. I'll say is Clement sees, Clement's idea is all truth is God's truth no matter who says it. So if this guy who's a pagan says something which is true because it lines up with Scripture, then we have every right to plunder it and use it for the sake of showing how God is God. It's kind of the, the, and these same two extremes still go on today, by the way, from ideas on, what, on biblical counseling or not, from ideas too. And, and the concept is this, like, does the Bible tell you two plus two is four? No, there's no flashcard in any verse in the Bible that teaches you two plus two equals four. Is two plus two, does two plus two equal four? Yes. Why? Because God made it that way. But wait, it's not in the Bible, so it can't be true. No, it is true, because not every truth, you see where we're... So Clement's going to be more on this vein of, to, to quote the phrase from Exodus, how can we plunder from the Egyptians and use the philosophical framework and use some of these things that come? And part of it's going to be a drive as well uh, because so many of these academic, educated elite go, man, you're just a bunch of superstitious, nonsensical Christians. Again, not much has changed. And he's going to go, well, if we can use their own philosophy and what's true of that philosophy to find some common ground and turn it against them for the sake of truth. That's going to be kind of the vein he's in, different than Tertullian. Um, what this is going to lead him to do is because of how heavily influenced everybody at that time philosophically was by Plato and this idea, this kind of dualistic separation, whether it was as crazy as the Gnostics or whether it was in a simple way like this, he's going to go, hey, when you read your Bible, there may or may not be a literal meaning, but there is for sure an allegorical meaning. 
So there may be that basic truth that you read that tells you Moses and the Egyptians walked through dry land as the sea parted, but there's a deeper truth. And I don't know, I mean, I'm making something up, but there's a deeper truth that any problem you face, God will part the waters of that problem and take you, right? This is what we call the allegorical interpretation of Scripture, where every passage of Scripture somehow has this deeper allegorical interpretation. And that's what I remember going through the first time I ever heard about Clement and then his successor, Origen. That's the, the, the thing I remember the most from it, because honestly, when you really hear it described from someone uh, more eloquent than myself, you go, well, that doesn't sound at that nutty because it doesn't sound that far from what a lot of us do with the Bible. But it does get pretty nutty. That's why we have to learn how to study the Bible in the way that the Bible teaches us to study the Scripture. And so that's not meant to be a criticism of Clement, but you, you see this develop. Um, by the way, he is going to be the oldest known author of a Christian hymn, Shepherd of Tender Youth. Where's Reclue? There is no choir, and he has ducked out. <laughs> and it's not even seven. My goodness. Going to see if he knows that one. Yes, no, I know. I'm just giving him a hard time. Uh, so, last one, Origen. Origen is going gonna, is gonna to be a disciple of Clement, 185. He's going to live 185 to 254. He's going to be the most prolific Christian writer before you get to uh, Augustine. He's going to write more than anything before Augustine. Uh, he's going to pioneer a very scholarly study and interpretation of Scripture. He's going to write the Hexpala, which is a line-by-line, get this, a line-by-line comparison of the Hebrew Old Testament, a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew Old Testament, Greek translations by Aquila, Symmachus, as well as the Septuagint and the Theodosian, all six of those line-by-line for you to go through and contrast, because surely all of you can read all of those different ones line by line. Uh, he's going to write several. Uh, he's going to write against uh, Celsus, which is a, the longest and greatest of the Greek apologies, the, the, the cases in defense for Christianity. It's going to, well, the effect it's going to have is it's going to raise the bar on the kind of apologetical defense that the church gives. And he's going to write De Principis, where he's going to take a lot of his understanding from Clement and develop a hermeneutical principle. So this is how you study Scripture. First, you find the bodily sense, that literal historical meaning. Then you find the psychic or soul sense, what's the moral teaching. And then you find the pneumatic spiritual, which is that allegorical interpretation that reveals the mysteries of the faith. Uh, he's going to be born into a Christian family. His father, Leonidas, was martyred around 202 under the persecution of Septimius Severus. Uh, his mother's going to be so concerned he will get himself martyred that she will hide all his clothes in order to prevent him from leaving the house and being arrested. But he will write letters to his father in prison where he encourages his father, don't you dare cave, thinking somehow you need to come take care of the family. You honor Jesus and God will take care of us and we'll be okay. Um, he's going to study under Clement, devoted to the studying of scriptures. Um, he is uh, he is going to be the, the bishop over Alexandria is going to get jealous of him, so he will ultimately be exiled to Caesarea. Uh, ultimately, he will suffer imprisonment and torture under the persecution from Decius, which is what most likely leads to his death shortly thereafter in the city of Tyre, around seventy years old. Um, his, uh, this is how it was put, if one, thinks in play, uh, uh, if one thinks in terms of Plato that there is a true spiritual world in which this material world is an imperfect imitation, then his idea of an allegorical interpretation of Scripture uh, means that one looks at the material text to find a spiritual truth that's deeper or beyond what is just there for face value. And certainly when we come to Scripture, there are things that you've got to do more digging than just face value to understand. Certainly the Holy Spirit can take a passage of Scripture and, and touch your heart and pierce your heart with it in a deep way so as to stir you. Um, but for God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, means that God so loved this world, He gave His one and only Son. So there's a balance there, and, I, and again, so there's a balance there with what Origen would do. Origen, though, will have a major, the ideas that come from Clement 
to origin, some of the theological framework and how they read their Bible and how they interpret it and how they do theology, that will provide the foundation for what centuries down the line will become the Eastern Church that we know of as like the Greek Orthodox, the Roman Orthodox, uh, sorry, the Russian Orthodox, the, the various branches of the Orthodox churches in the denomination, uh, not Orthodoxes in uh, true sound doctrine. And so this is, um, this is who Origen is. In addition, in this time, you'll see some people like uh, Cecilia Julius Africanus, who's going to write a, a chronography, uh, do historical research that covers create that that covered history from creation to his day of AD 2221. Uh, Hippolytus, who's going to study under Irenaeus, um, who's going to be uh, who's going to ultimately in 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 his life and, and the big thing that comes from him is a letter that records. Uh, a contest between he and an ex-slave Callistus, which is going to demonstrate to you a difference from their background, a difference in how they view and understand Jesus as God, and a difference in how they view and understand the church, especially as it relates to, if you'll remember, um, especially as it relates to in this time, they're all undergoing persecution. So what does the church do with those who chose to cave to persecution versus those who didn't cave but weren't martyred? Is the church supposed to be a place of absolute purity where, where sin is pushed out, or is the church a lifeboat for, or let me use modern day, or is the church a hospital for all the weak and the wounded? What is it? And then we remember that from last time we got into that, or maybe that was two times ago, a little bit of that conversation. That's going to be a big part of Hippolytus' life and where that comes in. Of course, in this same time frame is when you, if you remember the story of Perpetua and uh, Felicitas, the, the women who stood up and who were martyred, even though one was pregnant, one had just given birth, and, and all of these things. The one who, whose hair came unkept as she was being trampled by wild cows, and she said, please stop and let me put my hair back up because hair down means mourning, and this is a joyful day because I go home to be with the Lord. They're going to be in that same, that same time. And so that, there's one more we'll pick up with next week who's important for us to understand as we move into the third century and as we begin to progress towards more of um, the things that potentially some of you will be familiar with, like Arianism and the challenge against the nature of Jesus, as well as the Council of Nicaea and those things. But again, here's, here's a couple just practical points for you. One, it's vital we understand who our God is and who he's not. The distinction between the Holy Spirit being it or he is massive. And in our day and age, there's some who we, we, we mess it up because we're ignorant and not well studied or not well taught, because not all our churches do a good job of that. Or there's also, in our effort to be so charitable and, you know what, that person didn't mean it, it's okay, artistic license, we're just not as strict with what our words mean anymore. And that's across the board, not even on theological stuff. You, you can say a word that meant one thing in your day means a totally different thing today, and it meant something different between today and your day than in my day, and it's all the same word. Our words have lost a lot of their strict meaning, which makes it challenging, and some of that's our fault. Um, so it's vital. Sometimes little distinctions matter for your salvation and mine. So it's vital we understand and see that, and we'll unpack that more in the weeks to come as we work through this. In addition, here's what I was impressed just again going through this as I study uh, some of these theologians. I try to give you, as best I can, things where they were really good in high points and things where it was like, oh, that's a little off and wacky, to tell you this. We follow Jesus, not pastors and theologians. No pastor and theologian is perfect. No pastor and theologian is without blind spots or weaknesses. At the same time, just because a pastor or theologian has a blind spot or weakness does not undermine everything they say which is true and lines up to Scripture. Just because they have a personality you don't like, and frankly, the Lord may not like when they see him face to face, also doesn't mean that truth is wrong. It means they need to probably digest that truth a little more and improve their character. But you see this back and forth, and we need to do the same thing today. There's going to be people... Um, there's going to be people who you go, man, I have followed that person's ministry. They have had such an incredible ministry, They've, but they just came out and said this crazy thing that happened back then too. 
And it means value what was good and God used of their ministry and also don't agree with them on that crazy thing they just stepped out of alignment with the Lord on. No different than Paul. Paul had a respect for Peter. And when Peter went back to a form of racism, Paul called him out and didn't go, well, I mean, it's Peter, it's okay. No, what are you doing in there? So we've got to understand, and maybe, and maybe that's more on me and some of that, because there's, there's so many, um, I, just, I watch a lot today where you go, wow, that person has been so solid, and now they're out here espousing this. What does that mean? And if you're someone who thinks deeply, that can really rock you at times. And like all things, it's a challenge to go back and say, one, we take everything back to Scripture. You shouldn't just accept something because I say it. I mean, I appreciate your trust, and I want to be honored of that trust and, and only give you what the Lord says, but I'm not above misspeaking something, both accidental or intentional. Paul praised the Bereans. They didn't go, oh, you're Paul? Great, we'll take it. They said, that's great, Paul. We appreciate that. Let us take it and look at the Scriptures. And he said, way to go. And they were like, oh, Paul, you're right. It is all here just like you said. So we need to always take back to the Scriptures, and we also need to understand that it's possible for someone to walk really well with God, have a great impact on the kingdom, preach a lot of great sermons, write a lot of great books, and then do something really dumb and nutty and veer off in a direction. That's the story of some of these guys, story some of the guys we'll see in days to come. And what do we do with that? We grieve when people walk off. We don't mock them. We don't applaud them. We don't we grieve when they walk off, we pray for their return, but we stay solid, rock solid on truth, and we don't let it shake us because the preaching of men does not determine, the preaching of, of um, whatever person you've heard preaching, whatever book you've read, whatever devotional, whether it came from a man or a woman, the preaching of people, the writing of people, the musings of people does not determine whether Jesus is who he says he is and his word is correct. So we praise the Lord that God has very publicly kept sound orthodox doctrine in view, that we can respond to those criticisms of modern-day scholars who say, no, nah, that was just stuff they came up with. No, it wasn't. It's all there. The documentation's there publicly. Praise the Lord for that. And we praise the Lord that He's given us His written Word, and we live in a day and time where we can cling to it and do that. So I've gone a, a smidge over. I apologize, but um, trying to navigate through uh, all of this, I want to give you enough that it's valuable and not just another name or date on a piece of paper, but also uh, try to keep us moving and not just, you, you're, you didn't sign up to take a, a seminar on Irenaeus for three hours a week for 15 weeks, um, like you would in seminary or something like that. So anyways, appreciate you being here, church family. Grateful for you. Love you. Praise the Lord for what he's doing in our midst. Sunday will be crazy because it's Daniel 11. And if I unswing it, you're going to have a handout so I don't lose you Sunday because of how crazy Sunday is to walk through uh, because it is extremely precise prophecy about some very specific historical events that then will flip to what one day we will look back and say is extremely precise prophecy on events that have yet to occur. And so uh, to make sure I don't lose you, my aim is to, is to have a, some kind of handout or something for you that you'll be able to access afterward or something. But um, I'm excited. Uh, we've got a few more weeks in Daniel, and then we will jump to the next spot um, that we're going after that. So let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your faithfulness to preserve your church. Jesus, thank you for the fact that when we pray, Jesus, when we pray in your name, we're not praying in the name of a dude who somehow got good enough in God's eyes. But Jesus, when we pray in your name, we pray to you who has white hair like the Ancient of Days, whose eyes burn with the flame of fire, whose arms and legs are like burnished, polished bronze, stressing your almighty power. You who are clothed in linen, who stand as our great high priest and mediator, who's adorned with a golden sash because you are the king and sovereign ruler of this universe, whose victory that you achieved was not a victory for your reign, but a victory for our redemption. Because as it is all about you and it is all for you, you are somehow so good and loving 
that you humbled yourself in every way to come to live the life we failed to live in this horrible earth that all the philosophers of old didn't hesitate to condemn as evil and wicked and try to plot an escape route. You chose not to escape it, but to come, to come for the purpose of dying a horrific death where you would bear the full and entirety of the wrath of the triune God that we rightfully deserve. Because for whatever reason, you really do love us. And if we understand that, it should elevate our hearts. It should breathe life into us. While at the same time making us realize it's not about us at all. Oh, what a joy it's all about you. God, may we be people marked by great fear of you because we are people constrained by the goodness and greatness and the reality of your great love toward us. You're worthy, Lord. You are worthy. And may you find us as a church, as the individuals who make up this church, as the members of this body. May you find each and every one of us prostrate at your feet, standing right where you stand. God, at your feet, not five feet over to the other side. It's not about us, it's about you. Lord, you do your work of revival in our hearts. May you find us humble. And then Jesus, as we humbly respond to you, would you please bring at least one more great awakening in this world of ours. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.